welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Giordana. We're talking today about domestic terrorism, and our guest is author Rachel Hannell. Her book is titled, Not the Camilla We Knew, and we'll learn more about that as we get into the subject matter. But right now, let's go meet our host, Jamela Pettiford, and the co-hosts and our special guest panelist. Hello and welcome to It's a Woman's World. Well, you know, each time that we are with you, we bring you great stories written, produced, and told by women. And today is no different. We are excited to be here. We have so much to unpack and to talk about. And we're also so glad that you decided to join us. We hope that you stay for part one and two of this wonderful, thought-provoking conversation. Uh, as always, Nadia Giordana, we are so glad to have you here. Please tell us a little bit. I'm happy to be here. I uh, And I'm excited for Rachel to be here. She, I know her from outside of this program's and I have read her book, and I'm excited to talk to her about it and talk to the rest of you about, about it also. I'm a producer, and uh, the producer of this program, and a publisher. Awesome. And thank you always, Nadia. Uh, Barbara, please tell us a little bit about yourself, and I'm always glad to see you. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Jamila. It's, it's great to be here. And I too look forward to this uh, time with Rachel and uh, the contributions uh, and accomplishments that she's had. Um, and when I, I look at her, I'm not going to ask you your age, Rachel, but um, you have accomplished so much at your age. I'm very, very impressed. I'm an international photojournalist. My name is Barbara Lavalure. I'm a native of Minnesota, rural Minnesota as well. And uh, as I mentioned to Rachel before the camera started rolling, we have so much in common. We're both reporters and we both blogged and we have degrees in mass communication and there's even more, but we'll we'll get to that in our our uh, questions. So thank you so much, uh, Jamela. Yes, and thank you, Barbara. All right, Candy Pettiford, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. All right. I will. First of all, I'm excited to be here, and uh, I just I, I I really love it's a woman's world. We really get some really great subjects, and today is going to be another fantastic subject, is it not, Rachel? I think yes. so, yes. And I am an, an actor. Uh, I have 10 uh, books that I've written for, almost five of them are children's books. And so um, I do voiceovers. So I, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> and of course, I want to welcome you, Rachel. Rachel, thank you for being with us. Uh, we are excited not only to hear about your accomplishments, but about the book that you have written. Would you please tell us about the book you have written and just how did you begin um, you know, in this thought process? 
Sure. Well, first of all, thanks to all of you for having me and taking the time today to discuss the subject. I love having intelligent conversations about writing and about books and thoughts with people, and I'm just so excited. So thanks especially to Nadia for inviting me to do this. And yeah, I really do look forward to talking to each of you and seeing the questions that you might have. So my book that came out in December is called Not the Camilla We Knew. One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. And the story is about Camilla Hall, who is from small town, Minnesota. She grew up in St. Peter. Uh, her father was a pastor and a theology professor at Gustavus Adolphus College. So she grows up in a very typical, I guess, uh, Midwestern life uh, through the 40s and 50s. And eventually, though, she does end up in California as a young woman, about 23 years old, and she settles in Berkeley in 1971. So if you know anything about U.S. history, you know that Berkeley is still a pretty radical place uh, for people to be. And she does meet a woman there, and this woman is eventually going to be Camilla's introduction into the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was one of the more violent revolutionary groups to come out of the 1960s and 1970s in the U.S. And uh, Camilla lost her life. She was one of six people who were killed by more than 400 uh, L.A. police officers uh, when they decide when they discovered that they had the SLA cornered uh, in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, so she died uh, on May 17th, 1974. And I uh, just so much tragedy uh, was part of her life. I mean, so many good things too, but so much tragedy. So I really was compelled when I first mm -hmm. saw Camilla's photo in the newspaper in 1999. I just thought, how does this happen? How does a woman from small town Minnesota become part of a radical, violent organization and ends mm -hmm. up dying because of that? So that was really the driving question in all of these years that I spent researching the book. <laughs> Rachel, I was thinking about how uh, there were parts in your book that I especially liked, and those parts were how you used your deductive powers because there was there were gaps in Camilla's history. There was information, specific information you couldn't get, and you had to really use your intelligence, your investigative powers, and how you extrapolated uh, how someone like that could get to that point. And I'm wondering a little bit about that process and what went through your head as you did that and how you were able to get that down onto paper because it worked very well. Oh, thank you so much. So this is a work of nonfiction. I write nonfiction. I, I write nonfiction exclusively. I really feel completely incapable of making up stories. So I stay really firmly in that nonfiction world. And I, I love the world of nonfiction writing and creative nonfiction because you you don't need to have all the answers. You know, if you if you had all the answers and all the facts, you would just write a, a newspaper report, as Barbara understands. Um, but with creative nonfiction, you can do so much more. So if there are some gaps, you you can make these 
informed assumptions or educated assumptions, as I like to call them. And what I just try to do is I try to put myself in my character's shoes. So I tried to see the world as Camilla would have seen it. And I make it very clear to the reader that that I don't know, but I'm saying, well, perhaps it happened this way, or perhaps she was thinking this, um, that I knew enough about her life. And I knew enough about how she thought, you know, I had access to dozens of letters that she had written to her parents over the years and, and other documentation that really showed me what kind of person she was. So I felt like it wasn't that huge of a leap to try to figure out what, what she might've been thinking or what she might've been doing during some of those gaps where I didn't know exactly what she was doing. Um, I'd like to ask a question that normally I'd probably ask at the end of an interview, but I'm going to switch it around a little bit just for the fun of it. Um, uh, As someone who has done hundreds of interviews over the last 50, 55 years, what is the one question that you've always wanted the interviewers to ask you, but they've never asked you? Ask me. I can probably think of a lot of questions I wish people wouldn't ask. <laughs> can, can I ask one more question, Jamal? <laughs> of course. Um, all, all right. Well, then I'll get I'll get specific. Were you able, or maybe you tell the the viewers uh, about the experience of talking to people? who knew her and how you went about finding those people. Yeah, it was talk to you. Yeah, it was tough because I mean, we are talking about now it's been 50 years. I mean, when I first started doing this research, it was only about 25 years or 30 years on, but still people disperse and uh, especially women might change their names. And so people that Camilla may have may have known in the past, sometimes it was really tough to, to try to track them down or figure out where they may be. Another challenge was that all of Camilla's family uh, had passed away. So there was really nobody obvious out there who who knew her well. Um, So that was a big challenge. It's not like she had a lifelong friend from age five up until the time she died. She was uh, the type of person who had a lot of friends, but they were very, they were very particular to that time and place. And once she moved on, she didn't keep in touch with those friends that she had left behind. But I was able to find people who knew her. Um, As Barbara had mentioned, I I had a blog for many years where I would write about Camilla and uh, people would find me through the blog. And so people who had known Camilla in the past um, would look up her name, kind of wondering what happened to her and and find me in this uh, research that I was doing. So that was really nice. I mean, of course, I wish I would have found more. I wish I could have found, you know, everybody that she ever knew or Mm -hmm. everybody that she ever spent time with. But Mm -hmm. the ones I did find, I mean, they were remarkably consistent in how they described her. They described Mm -hmm. her as a wonderful friend and very warm and very friendly and very witty and somebody who would do anything for you. So I felt like even though I didn't talk to a ton of people or I wasn't able to find a ton of people who knew her, they they all told the same story about Camilla. Mm. Well, you know, Rachel, I, I have to say that as I watch you talk about Camilla, as I listen to the descriptive language that you use, I almost sense that you are living vicariously through her story. Uh, Many times, I think, you know, we see powerful women and we know 
one of the quotes my mom always says is behind every good woman is the good women who came before her, you know, can you talk about just really how Camilla has inspired you? Do you, I mean, has she visited you in spirit? I mean, are you in somehow commune with Camilla in a, in a way that is spiritual, that feels you know, just kind of like you can't put your finger on it, but she called to you somehow. I am so glad that you asked that question. So maybe that would be a follow-up to Barbara's question okay. <laughs> that, that people, people don't necessarily ask me that question, but in some mm -hmm. interviews, I, I end up answering, answering that question because yes. And I always preface it by saying like, this is going to sound really woo woo, but, um, but absolutely. I, yeah feel Camilla's presence so mm. strongly. And I feel like she has been talking through me. And it was mm. something that I really had to think about. Um, you know, my previous book that came out 10 years ago was a memoir. So I'm writing about myself and I'm writing about my family. So I had no qualms about writing about my dad or my grandparents who had passed away because they were my family members. I, I felt comfortable speaking for them. Now with Camilla, I don't know her. I didn't know her. And I really had to ask myself some hard questions. Um, does she, does she even want the story told? Does she want her face on the cover of a book for everyone to read about her story? And I just kept coming back to the answer was yes. I was getting enough signs out there. You know, one sign would just simply be that her parents were, when they were alive, they talked about this story a lot. And I really got a sense that they wanted somebody to write about her because they were very confused too. And the more they could talk to people, I think it helped them try to figure out what happened to their daughter. So I felt confident in that way. Um, but then I also would get um, signs. Uh, Camilla drove a blue Volkswagen Beetle. And there were times where maybe I felt at the lowest point, you know, in writing this book, oh, nobody's ever going to want to read it. Nobody's going to want to publish it. I, I would see blue VW cars everywhere. I would see like three in a day. I would see ones from the 1960s, like not even new ones. And so every time I, I saw that, I thought that is a sign. She's trying to let me know that everything's going to be okay. Just keep proceeding with what you're doing. Wow. You know what? And I, and I have to say that as you speak, as you talk about the story that is known, if you're, you're clued in, that is known that you, that you hear her voice, that you, she wants you to tell her story and you're doing exactly what I, I think her spirit um, is, is requesting. Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to ask as a writer, sometimes we have writer's block, you know, it's like, uh, uh, uh. And it's really kind of a twofold question. And then also, did you go to the town where she lived and kind of drive around and just talk to people and just, so that's a twofold question, but that, that writer's block, because sometimes I'm like, what's happening here? So <laughs> uh, tell me, Rachel. Oh, I know it's such a it's such an evil thing, isn't it? That that yeah. writer's block. I I don't necessarily feel writer's block, but I often feel um, maybe uh, 
I'll give myself excuses not to write because writing's hard, right? Like it's really hard and, and, and you're not going to write and then publish a book the next day. Like it's a really long, long process. And so for that reason, I can find um, excuses not to write, you know, oh, I need to clean my house or I need to actually, you know, work on my full-time job or that kind of thing. So a lot of times I'm not making the space for writing that I know I could. And I think if people make that space, that writer's block eventually goes away because you're you're creating that time for it. So I, I do need to be better at that. And as far as the places where Camilla lived, I was able to go and see the places where she lived. So I'm, I'm really close to St. Peter, Minnesota. I'm in Southern Minnesota. So it's very easy for me to go there and, and go to Gustavus and go past the house where she lived there. I've been past her, her apartment up in Duluth. She lived there for a year up in Duluth, Minnesota. And then I was able to get a grant that allowed me go to go to the Bay Area. So she was in the Bay Area for about three years. And that was very, very helpful to me to just get a sense of place and get even just that perspective, like being in Camilla's eyes like what did she see when when she looked out her front door what was her view to me as a writer those kind of details are really important what was your your final summative as as your objective for for telling this story what what was your your gift that you wanted to give to maybe other women or other folks who are maybe struggling with their voice or finding their voice yeah absolutely uh so one big objective I had in writing this book that really only became apparent the more I did research and the more I got into it was to basically correct the historical record. Um, when you look into history, especially if you use newspapers, you know, as your historical record, and obviously the SLA was in newspapers all the time you sometimes get a really flat one dimensional story, mostly because there's just not the space. I mean, there's not the space in a newspaper article to get into all sorts of complexities about people and why they do the things they do. So what I found about Camilla in looking back at the, at history and, and what had been reported were, were very surface stories and very one dimensional. And they wanted to kind of just paint her as this one thing and the more I started to research about her life, I mean, I found a very complex individual, as we all are. Uh, so that felt really important to me to say that, hey, there was more to her life than just these last moments of her life. And because she died in such a public, violent way, that is often the last thing that people ever saw of her. And that was the last thing she was known for. And I think this can lead us into a discussion later too, uh, because it happens all the time, you know, like that's how people, it's like they're frozen in amber after this one thing that they did. Um, so being able to show her background and maybe give some more um, in-depth reasons of why she made the choices she did felt very important for me to do. And I think especially as a woman, you know, I think just in the in the historical record, less attention is paid to women and less attention is paid to painting them as full, complete beings. Uh, you mentioned something and I, I felt the same thing when I was reading the book as I realized this was in the 1970s 
and gradually over the decades to today, not only in the United States, but worldwide. Did you come away with any, any insights as to what makes that happen in our country? Was that, do you know if that was one of the earliest incidents there were, or had they been happening and it just didn't click in our minds at that time? Uh, what can you say about that? Yeah, I think I think things like this had always happened, um, but definitely I can see parallels to today. And I think Camilla's story is representative of what happens when people are really frustrated. And so we're seeing people today who are really frustrated. And it's like, there's a period of time where people are frustrated and they say, okay, well, we're gonna go the peaceful route and we're just gonna let people know we're frustrated and we're gonna use our voices and that kind of thing. And then after a while, if that doesn't seem to be working, there's going to be a smaller faction who says, okay, that didn't work. We are willing to be more vocal, we are willing to perhaps get physical or we're willing to perhaps take up some violence because we need to wake people up. Like nobody's listening, even though we've been talking, nobody's listening. So now we need to step it up to another level. Um, so I think that uh, definitely that frustration is the common thread across the years. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that question, Nadia, because actually my mind was kind of going in the same uh, in the same direction. Um, so I know that um, domestic terrorism uh, is is not necessarily new, but I do think that it wasn't it didn't seem to be happening as often then as it is now. I mean, now there's more than one incident a day, let alone a year. And uh, I mean, this is domestic terrorism. This is domestic violence, p police brutality, home, uh, you know, homegrown terrorism. And the facts are that, yes, mostly men are the perpetrators, but there are women involved too. And there are women victims in this, um, in these uh, incidences. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure what question I want to ask, but um, a, as a journalist, it seems that what's in the paper and what my, my friends complain about is all the negative news in the paper. But when I was becoming a journalist and learning about news, uh, what was reported was the unusual um, and sure, there were features, good feeling features, but what was reported was um, was not the norm. Now, doesn't it seem like the norm is terrorism, violence? Yeah, un unfortunately. I mean, I just think about... Uh, the mass shootings, right? You know, I, there's no arguing that this is something that is, is that in our culture is obviously happening way, way, way more often than it ever has before. 
And how often, you know, then do we, are we getting inured to it? You know, um, I've seen a lot of articles that touch on that subject. Like it just keeps happening and happening and happening. Are we becoming as a culture, like, oh, I guess that happened again. Okay. Let's move on to the next topic. Um, it really is frightening if that's the case of how we're going to view these things. Mm -hmm. But I also have to, I mean, <clears throat> I have to agree to disagree. I mean, the United States was established on violence. Oh, very much so. And so historically, I mean, that is um, as American as apple pie, that is American as the flag, uh, this level of violence. Now, when we, when we speak of domestic terrorism, one of the questions I want to ask you, how much of race and class come into play when we talk about Camilla, when we talk about uh, this uh, young lady that comes from a hodunk town in Minnesota who goes and, and changes the world, her world and those who knew her uh, through this domestic terrorism, how much of race and class plays a role in what we are seeing when we see mass shootings, when we see things uh, like the different bombings that are happening locally, you know, we're not seeing black and brown people in those in those areas. We are seeing truly domestic terrorists. Um, and so talk a little bit about what you uncovered uh, as far as the the attachment to location to race and class. Yeah, race and class factor hugely into the story of the SLA. So, you know, if it, the SLA, it's one of those things where, you know, Patty Hearst, their famous kidnap victim, like all the media attention goes on to Patty Hearst. And a lot of people yeah. are left wondering, well, what, what is, what is this thing? What is even the SLA? So the SLA stands for Symbionese Liberation Army. And if you just even take a look at that title of the organization with that word symbionese is symbiosis. It's this idea that I think it's a, I think it's a biological term, but it's like two separate organisms coming together, but to work, work together and like work for something better to create something better. So the SLA was born out of this idea that, hey, here's a whole bunch of different populations in the United States that are uh, not getting any attention. They're being treated really poorly, basically non-white and non-male. So they were very conscious of, okay, we have a huge racial problem in the United States. We have a huge class problem. We have a huge problem with um, uh, capitalism, you know, like the rich are only getting richer and the poor are getting poor. So that was the basis of their organization. And if you read their manifestos or their communiques, I mean, especially the first one that is just like, hey, here's who we are and here's what we believe. Like on paper, it sounds good. I mean, who would argue with wanting to create a better society by helping the people who hadn't been helped, you know, to that point. Um, but where they just took it to that next level is they said, well, now we just have to arm ourselves. We have to use violence. We really, we need a complete revolution in order to change society. Um, and that's where not everybody's going to get on board with that piece of it. Changes. And, uh, and so Rachel, I want to thank you for being with us uh, for this part one of this conversation of just really how do we unpack the, the voices in the lives of the past to really highlight some of the things that we need to highlight and learn from some of those areas 
that are still remaining. And of course, we always love having you with us. And so not only voices of the past, we're bringing them all the way into the present, taking them with us into the future. So again, it's a woman's world. I am Jamila Pettiford. And just in case you didn't know, I'm Googleable. You can look me up. I am a singer, writer, poet, actress, you name it. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to seeing you for part two of this conversation. It's a woman's world.